and hello from the team at ENT Expert Opinion. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening and welcome to all of our new listeners. We have been at this project now for going on three years. And at the time that this podcast goes up, which is January 2016, um, we'll have nearly 20,000 downloads of just 37 interviews. So thanks a lot for tuning in. It's been really fun. It's going to be an exciting year for the series. Um, We've got some really interesting things lined up in the next few months that we will share with you later. Um, But the team has been busy discussing the future directions of the podcast. And we've decided that the best way for the podcast to grow and to expand the topic list is to work with you, our listeners. We want more people involved. There's a couple different ways you can get involved. First, feedback, of course, is always appreciated. Whether it's a topic suggestion, an expert recommendation, or just general feedback, you can get in touch with us via Twitter or email. We are also currently looking for people who are interested in conducting interviews on any ENT-related topic. Dr. Jefferson will work with you to pick the right topic, find an expert, and to formulate the questions. You conduct the interview, and I'll do the editing and publish it. Get in touch with us. Twitter is at ENTExpertOpin, and email is info at ENTExpertOpinion.com. Really excited about the year ahead. Hope you'll join us in making it big. That's all from me for now. On with the podcast. Good morning and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion series. My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson. Today I'll be interviewing Dr. Daniel Chu. Uh, Dr. Chu is the Director of the Division of Pediatric Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery and Professor at the UC Department of Pediatrics. He's also associated with the UC Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery in Cincinnati, Ohio. He obtained his medical degree and completed otolaryngology residency training in Syracuse, New York. He then completed fellowships in otology, neurotology at the Ear Research Foundation in Sarasota and then the uh, neurotology branch of the National Institute of Health. Clinically, he's involved in the diagnosis and management of children with hearing loss, pediatric cochlear implantation, surgery for congenital ear abnormalities, hearing restoration surgery. He's an active academic and mentor to the many residents and fellows rotating through Cincinnati's healthcare system, and it's a pleasure to talk to you today. How are you, Dr. Chu? Doing very well, thank you. All right. Uh, Our topic today is congenital oral atresia. Let's start with what is congenital oral atresia and how common is it? So oral atresia refers to a typically congenital defect in which children are born without a patent ear canal probably occurs in the range of one in every 12,000 births, and the vast majority, especially in the United States, occur in conjunction with microtia. So microtia refers to a congenital birth defect of the outer ear or the external pinna, and that occurs in different degrees of severity. There are several different classification systems, but A grade 1 microtia, for example, refers to a slightly small pinna or external ear, but the components of it are typically all still in place. A grade 2 microtia refers to a slightly more malformed or hypodeveloped external ear, and then a grade 3 is typically a microtia where there's not much of an external ear structure at all and simply just an ear lobule that typically forms. 
it's relevant to talk to that in context with an oral atresia because those two very frequently occur in conjunction and relates to the congenital abnormalities of the of the ear itself. Are there any known risk factors for this condition? It's interesting to look at the population of children that have a oral atresia as well as microtia. The overwhelming majority are male patients, and then the overwhelming majority are also right ears as opposed to left ears. Theoretically, if it was a perfectly fortuitous event, that would happen, it should seem to affect both ears and affect both women and, and males as well equally. The fact that it's not has led some people to even speculate that maybe it's an in utero developmental phenomena where because the right ear is downward in the uterus, simple pressure effects might have some effect on the development. We also know that there are several genetic conditions that can go along with oral atresia and microtia. For example, in the setting of a branchio-otorenal syndrome, which is associated with an EYA1 mutation, there are children who have this atresia and microtia that go along with those genetic mutations. Um, how then do these patients present to you? It's fairly common for us to get referred a newborn infant because of the obvious uh, atresia of the ear canal. Um, neonatologists have gotten pretty comfortable with uh, the diagnosis of this from their routine initial examination. There's a smaller percentage of children who show up later on in life uh, after not passing some of their hearing screenings. In the U.S., about 94% of all births in the U.S. get screened for hearing loss at birth, and if you have an atresia of the ear canal, even the screening technician who does that realizes they won't get a normal result, and so a lot of them end up in specialty clinics as a result of that referral. So you've mentioned newborn screening. Are there any other key elements in the history that you look for when you begin this evaluation? Probably typical for a lot of congenital type disorders and problems, a family history ends up being fairly significant. Uh, so about 12 to 15 percent of our children who have an oral atresia will have a positive family history. Uh, in addition, if there's any type of syndromic problem, um, such as the Treacher Collins, Pierre Robin, or even a branchio-otorenal syndrome, there's a recessive or a dominant pattern of inheritance, which then can make it a significant history factor. So you've already uh, mentioned uh, microtia and uh, its evaluation. Um, what is involved in your physical examination of these children? Some of the general features going from macro down to a more minutia level is to look at the child overall and try and discern if there's any features that make you think of a syndromic type process. So from overall stature to... Are there any pigmentary lesions? Do they have cafe au lait spots? Do they have facial asymmetry that might make you think of a hemifacial microsomia? Uh, and some of those things are very difficult, especially in infants who get referred in. There's still a lot of neonatal fat, and even with bony asymmetry and a hemifacial microsomia, sometimes that's not detectable until the children are slightly older. Specific things that we also look at are facial nerve function, the facial nerve is intricately involved in our patients who have an oral atresia just because of the proximity and the somewhat atypical course that the nerve runs through the temporal bone in these patients. 
So occasionally we'll see children who have a slight asymmetry in their facial nerve function that goes along with the oral atresia, and clinically and surgically that becomes a little bit more relevant down the road. Um, having completed your history and physical examinations, do you have investigations that you will routinely perform? So it's very relevant to make sure that especially your young children and infants in particular can hear well. And so a routine ABR is part of the hearing battery. And this just confirms for us that the contralateral ear, uh, if hopefully normal in appearance and exam, actually has normal hearing. The second piece that the ABR can provide is some of our audiologists can provide us with bone conduction audiometry. And so even in an ear canal that's not patent, we can still see if the nerve function on that side is intact, and that has great relevance as to whether the candidate, the patient's a candidate for an atresia repair down the road. The other thing we routinely get is some type of imaging, and high-resolution, non-contrast CT scan is definitely the best study for this. Shows you the bony anatomy particularly well and what's probably standard for the vast majority of surgeons and clinicians who manage atresia is to use some type of uh, scoring scale on the CT scan. The scoring provides you with a systematic way of assessing these atretic ears and then also in providing the patient's family with prognostic information as to what the chances are for getting a good hearing result if reconstruction is pursued. Probably the most widely used one is the one created by Bob Jorstorfer many years ago. In that system, something like a stapes bone, which is very crucial to hearing, is valued at two points. Each of the other oscils gets one point. Then there's factors such as facial nerve position, middle ear cleft and mastoid development, external ear position, and then structures of the inner ear such as the cochlear and cochlear nerve that get incorporated into the scoring. We used to break it down from different scoring levels, such as a 9 or a 10 was an excellent prognosis, 7 or an 8 provided a good prognosis but tempered compared to the 9s or 10s, and then 6 or below used to be a cutoff for most surgeons, in which case doing a reconstruction on a temporal bone that scored a 6 was uniformly associated with poor hearing results, and we typically discouraged patients from pursuing that type of reconstruction. These days, with enhancements in surgical procedures, as well as better safety margins and experience with facial nerve, pretty much anybody who's a seven or above is still a candidate for an atresia repair. And results tend to be fairly consistent from surgeon to surgeon along those guidelines. So uh, we've talked already uh, to the, when surgery may be indicated. Um, what about hearing rehabilitation? It's really the ultimate goal in managing your patients with oral atresia to try and give them adequate access to sound and speech so that life communication happens as effortlessly and on track as possible for these children as they develop. These days we're fortunate to have really good non-surgical options as well. One of our practices that we've evolved into pretty regularly these days is to offer our infants and children's use of a bone conduction hearing aid, which they wear on a headband. And probably the most common ones that we use are a bone anchored hearing aid device from Cochlear or a Ponto device from the Oticon company. 
both work in a perfectly analogous fashion in just using a bone conduction hearing aid to stimulate the inner ear directly on the side with the atresia. Later on, especially in the United States, these implantable devices uh, such as the Bajas or Pontos are FDA approved when the children are five years of age. As you think about the different hearing reconstructive options for these kids, um, the pros of doing an oral atresia repair usually come along the lines of helping a child improve their hearing without the need for any type of appliance that they need to pay for and maintain. The downsides is that the results from atresia repair, even in the best of hands, is still somewhat variable and dependent upon what the intrinsic anatomy constraints might be for that patient. On the other hand, if you look at the pros of a bone conduction hearing aid device or even some of these semi-implantable devices, you are committing that patient to using an, an appliance to help them hear, and there's an ongoing maintenance as well as cost associated with that. However, the benefits of the bone-anchored hearing aids and bone conduction devices is that they probably offer outstanding hearing results in a highly predictable and consistent fashion. So for those reasons, a lot of surgeons have opted to eliminate the variability associated with atresia surgery and instead opt for use of a bone-anchored hearing aid device of some type. When we've gotten to the point and we're considering surgery based on those characteristics that you've already outlined, um, when do you consider it? At what age um, and how does that relate to a microtia repair if that's required? Mm -hmm. So very lengthy planning and discussion with these families. We obviously identify the vast majority of these children right at birth but don't plan on doing any type of intervention surgically for several years. So over those ensuing years, we have a lot of discussions with the families at annual uh, evaluations just to monitor how the children are going, but then also to answer questions about the different management option pathways. One of the complexities is that when it happens in concert with a congenital microtia, it's preferable to do the external ear plastics reconstruction first, followed by the atresia repair afterwards. The reason for that is that part of the skin right around the uh, area for the native ear or the reconstructed ear is going to be used for the microtia reconstruction. So you want skin that's been non-violated and non-scarred in order to get the best aesthetic result. The challenge there is working together with the plastic surgeons commonly to make sure that the placement of the ear is appropriate. and doesn't undermine any of the efforts down the road to do the hearing reconstructive portion in terms of the atresia repair. The other permutations though that we discuss with our patients is that some families only have concerns about the aesthetic external ear reconstruction which can be done at any point uh, after the kids are approximately seven or eight years of age uh, depending upon the surgical technique used to reconstruct the outer ear. Uh, some of our parents will opt to do an external ear reconstruction and then combine it with a bone anchored hearing aid. And in other cases, the families don't have any concerns about the external ear appearance, but only want their child to have a functional hearing ear. In that case, we can either do an atresia repair or placement of a bone anchored hearing aid without necessarily worrying about the microtia reconstruction. As a general guideline, it's typically a little bit safer and easier to begin thinking about the oral atresia repair in isolation 
when the kids are at least three or four years of age. Just the size of the temporal bone, the proximity to the temporal mandibular joint area, and then trying to anticipate some of the growth of the ear naturally over time. It's probably optimal to do it at that age range. Uh, earlier than that makes it certainly more difficult in terms of anticipating future growth as well as tight confines of the mastoid cavity and the facial nerve. Does bilaterality uh, play into uh, timing of surgery? Mm -hmm. So in the old days, before there was excellent bone conduction device options, when children had bilateral oral atresia, they were obviously significantly hearing handicapped, and so we'd try to push that envelope. And that's where we gained some experience that doing atresia repair surgery at two years of age, for example, was a little bit more difficult than when they were three or four. Um, so who then makes a good surgical candidate? I think the intrinsic anatomy, as demonstrated on the CT scan, is one of the most overarching factors as to determining candidacy for an atresia repair. Other factors are compliance. Uh, there is a significant short-term period of intensive cleaning and monitoring postoperatively, but also long-term, these reconstructed atretic ear canals require more cleaning and care until they develop into a more mature self-cleaning ear canal. And so those patients need to show up on a fairly regular basis for the first few years before that become lower maintenance. And lastly, if you are anticipating a bone anchored hearing aid type device or not, similarly those patients have some audiology follow-up and routine care that's needed just to maintain their, their appliance. You've already talked to a lot of this, but uh, taking into account what you've already said, um, is there, are there any additional things that might make someone a bad surgical candidate? Mm, I'd say some of the things that we really weigh carefully are, are patients who have atresia in the setting of a syndromic disorder. So because this tends to occur in certain syndromes, those associated medical conditions and anomalies can make a patient a poor candidate for an atresia repair. For example, uh, some of our children who have developmental delays and cognitive handicaps really don't show great benefit from improving their hearing on one side. And so it actually makes you think twice about putting them through the risks of that type of surgery. Conversely, there are patients who have uh, behavioral disorders in concert with their oral atresia. And some of these are kids on our autism spectrum or Down syndrome uh, diagnosis scale who really don't tolerate hearing aids of any sight or any type of appliance on their head uh, just because of sensor sensory integration type disorders. So for those kids who need help hearing but won't tolerate it from a behavioral standpoint, sometimes the best answer is to do an atresia repair and try and restore their native hearing without the need for any type of external appliance. So we've gotten to surgery. Uh, what then are your preoperative considerations? I think once you've got your imaging squared away and are comfortable with uh, several aspects of it. So one of the things that's particularly helpful for us and is something I've just recently gotten better at is trying to determine surface topography on the temporal bone CT scan so that once you've elevated the soft tissue and are now looking at the outer cortex of the temporal bone, you can try to roughly identify 
positions on the surface that you think are overlying the middle ear structures that you want to try and identify surgically. The standard approach would be to take an anterior superior approach, which is uh, what Jarsdorfer and others have advocated and honed over the years. And in that surgical approach, you use the glenoid fossa or the TMJ as your anterior limit heading up towards the zygomatic root. And then your temporal line or your metafossa dura will be the superior landmark. And you start drilling in that anterior superior quadrant, which typically brings you right down into the epitympanum or the superior aspect of the ossicular heads. One of the advantages of that is that even in the somewhat atypical anatomy for an ear with an atresia, the facial nerve is invariably medial to the ossicular heads. So accidental drilling directly down onto the fallopian canal is minimized taking this kind of approach. That's the other part that's fairly relevant in your preoperative planning is carefully mapping out the course of the facial nerve so that once you get down to that level, uh, you don't run into problems in an unanticipated manner. However, what's probably routine for most complex ear surgeries, facial nerve EMG monitoring is a standby for all of these cases. Uh, should be tested and implemented right from the start of the case. There's certainly been cases we've had where facial nerve was actually not running within the lumen of the fallopian canal as seen on the CT scan. It was simply hovering through in the soft tissue and it was only a facial nerve presence that alerted this as we were making our initial soft tissue cuts down towards the temporal bone. That would have been exciting. Um, you've talked to this already uh, in relation to uh, timing of the surgery if there's a microtial repair. Does that influence where you make your uh, initial incision for your atresia? This will be a little bit variable depending upon uh, the collaborative work that you do with your other surgeons in plastics or laryngology, or for those surgeons that do the entire microtia and ear, reconstruct, ear canal reconstruction themselves. It's very relevant if the external ear has already been reconstructed uh, using a typical Burt Brent type technique. We're actually a little bit hesitant to cut through the postauricular sulcus again, which is typically formed by a free skin graft. You just worry a little bit about the healing afterwards. So even though that would give you the best exposure and more comfortable soft tissue approach to reconstructing the ear canal, after a four-stage Brent approach, we'll typically take more of an endoral approach and go right down, create an external meatus at the start, and then start drilling through a transcanal type approach. In contrast, some of the surgeons for microtia will use a Nagata repair, which is a two-stage repair and at the second stage, in concert with the external ear reconstruction phase, we also do the oral atresial reconstruction. This has become our standard approach here. And in that approach, the postauricular incision is already made by the plastic surgeon at the beginning of the second stage. So that's much more comfortable. We have a wide exposure of the surface of the temporal bone. We can see the zygomatic root. We can see the glenoid fossa. You can see the mastoid tip as well as the mastoid cortex very easily. It makes it easy harvesting for temporalis fascia because the wound is so open and you do need a large piece of that for grafting the eardrum once you get down to that level. What about post-operative instructions? The post-op care for the artresia patients is fairly intense for the first two to four weeks. 
uh, after completion of grafting of the eardrum as well as skin grafting of the ear canal. Uh, the ear canal then is packed with gel foam as well as a Maricel sponge. It's critical to keep the Maricels expanded so the families will be saturating the sponges with Cypridex or some other type of antibiotic plus steroid solution over the early post-operative period. We try to keep that Maricel packing in place for at least three weeks. However, at the end of that time period, they often get pretty hard and desiccated and also start to get a little bit ripe at that time. Uh, depending upon how the healing is going after the surgery, it's probably most common to pull out the old Maricel packing and replace it with a new one uh, and then maintain it in place for another two to three week period. We find that the longer we keep the Maricel in place, the better the ear heals up and the greater the patency rate. Pulling the Maricel sponges out earlier than three weeks definitely is prone to restenosis over time. And I'd probably mention that the Maricel packing has actually made a concrete difference in the rates of restenosis as well as the rates of reoperation. As simple as an intervention it is as it is, the predecessor to using Maricel packing was to do an old-fashioned rosebud dressing, which I would coin as a static type dressing. You would line the ear canal with Owen silk and then pack typically cotton saturated with uh, antibiotic eardrops into the ear canal. So you packed it tightly and it would hold it in a static position, but it would not exert any type of outward force onto the ear surrounding ear canal circumferentially. Since we've been using Marisol packing, even if patients several weeks to months down the road, if they started showing signs of restenosis where the ear canal or meatus was starting to get tight, you could actually insert a Maricel sponge back in at that time point, send the patients home with several of them and some eardrops, and watch that ear canal stretch back out to the dimensions that you want. So in this way, there are literally dozens of patients who have avoided resurgery just because of that simple intervention. Into the long term, uh, you've mentioned that uh, it is a long-term relationship that you build with these patients. How, how do you counsel them from an expectation point of view about what's going to be required into the long term? A few aspects on that. So first, from a hearing perspective, which is often the family's primary concern, we talk about uh, the odds of getting successful hearing to a good level, uh, which for us is hearing where we don't feel that they need any help in terms of amplification with a hearing aid. If patients typically scored a 9 or a 10 on their preoperative CT scan, our success rates were actually in the 90% range for getting patients a good hearing ear. If patients scored a 7 or an 8, which was the vast, vast majority of our surgical reconstructions, then that success rate dropped to about a 75 to 80% range of patients needing, uh, of patients getting a good hearing result without the need for a hearing aid. And typically for our patients six and under, we didn't recommend surgery. So we counsel them that we don't anticipate those hearing results to really stabilize and manifest until about three to four months after surgery. There's a fairly quick healing phase in the first month or two after surgery, but there's some slower continued healing curve that occurs after that. One of the humbling things that we're also noticing as we follow these patients extremely long-term, so into their late teens, is that as our patients go through various adolescent growth spurts, 
we'll often see their ear canal, their eardrum, and unfortunately their hearing change as they go through those growth spurts. So it's necessary for us to follow our patients into adolescence just to monitor to see if they are going to be that population of children who notices a hearing decrement as they've gotten older over time, or maybe their ear canal has gotten a little bit stenotic as they went through some of their adolescent growth phase. What complications are associated with uh, a repair of congenital oral atresia? It's interesting that over the years, I think the main concerns that used to inhibit surgeons from tackling oral atresia, namely the facial nerve paralysis, has really gone by the wayside. It's a combination of higher resolution imaging that's given us a great roadmap of where the facial nerve runs through the temporal bone. It's a combination with facial nerve monitoring, which I think instills a higher level of confidence in some of the surgeons that we won't cause any iatrogenic harm. And then the third piece is just increasing experience as you get a little bit more comfortable understanding some of the typical patterns and anatomical relationships in these atresias, it becomes much more routine, very analogous to chronic ear surgery in terms of keeping things safe. The other complications that we see, uh, probably restenosis of the ear canal and more, even more specifically the external meatus, are probably some of the issues that we continue to battle with. But as I was just mentioning with the Maricel, thankfully most of those are manageable on an outpatient basis in the clinic without necessarily going back to the operating room for revision surgery. Probably the most difficult one that's also difficult to predict is the chronic otorrhea after oral atresia repair. So this one's particularly frustrating and unfortunately the best option for that one is probably revision surgery. We're not exactly sure why this happens. Uh, it may be because of the way in which we're reconstructing these ear canals and we connect the mastoid air cells through portions of the ear canal as we're drilling down through the outer cortex. It could be that some of these congenital ears also have very poor eustachian tube dysfunction. And prior to the atresia repair, it just really wasn't visible and not diagnosable. But now that you have the ear canal opened up and a eardrum in place, you actually start seeing some of these otorrhea complications. If I were to estimate, I'd say that's probably about 3 to 4% of our atresia repaired kids who end up with chronic otorrhea problems post-op. What is the... Where are we going with this? What are the future directions in relation to management of congenital oral atresia? Hmm. That's a good question. It could take several different avenues. Uh, I think the surgical reconstruction of a patent ear canal will always remain one of the hallmarks for this because that's probably the only way to provide these children with hearing without the need for an appliance. On the other hand, the technology for hearing restoration uh, continues to get spectacularly better over time. Just the signal processing, the reliability, and the overall effectiveness of bone conduction hearing aids continues to get better. And even with the use of magnetic implants, where you don't necessarily have to have any percutaneous uh, attachments in order to use them, make them a lot more appealing to patients. 
in terms of the surgery repair, if we think a little bit further, there is also the application of additive technologies or 3D printing, um, which might have significance, particularly for this atresia repair surgery. For those of you who don't really are, are not that familiar with temporal bone and ear surgery, one of the fundamental tenets in learning how to do this is to practice on cadaveric temporal bones. Uh, and on those normal temporal bones, surgeons can practice the vast majority in the array of ear procedures that are being done. However, the availability of temporal bone specimens that have an atresia is extremely limited, if non-existent. As a result, there's really no model on which to practice this type of surgery. The application of 3D printing combined with high-resolution imaging gives us the opportunity to now print up the patient-specific temporal bone model on these additive technologies machines and then allow the surgeon to actually practice the surgery on the patient's model that's individualized and specified to that unique patient. Really provides a tremendous opportunity to try and figure out what's the best surgical technique to repair this patient. And I bet you that will actually improve our success rates as well. Well, I'm sure everyone has enjoyed uh, what has been quite an eloquent discussion on uh, the topic of congenital oral atresia. We'll close, as we always do, with the final word. The final word is an opportunity to highlight something that we've discussed that goes to the heart of this, con of this topic, um, or uh, an opportunity to touch on something that hasn't been covered over the course of this interview. So I'll hand it over to you now, Dr. Chu, for the final word. As some final summation thoughts, I would share that these atresia patients present some of the most surgically challenging cases that we encounter in pediatric otolaryngology. The balancing point for individual surgeons managing these patients is your comfort zone in surgically performing the procedures. I think it requires a pretty objective and sometimes difficult self-assessment to see how successful are you actually getting these uh, patients good hearing through your surgical technique and then balancing that against the effectiveness of something like a bone anchored hearing aid. So one of the humbling aspects is an interesting study that Clef Shelton did out at Utah in which he very transparently looked at his oral atresia rates starting from the first one that he did up to his 50th case. And it probably is around the 24th to 25th case at which he started seeing a significant elevation as well as uh, standardized consistent hearing result that he got from his oral atresia reconstructions. So what this means is that for this oral atresia condition, which may not be that common to the vast majority of practitioners out there, you have to hit a certain volume of cases and experience before you start getting really good hearing results for your patients. Uh, and unfortunately, that means that there probably won't be a tremendous number of centers or physicians that perform this surgery in order to reach that sweet spot on the hearing outcomes curve. Uh, and in that case, uh, if you don't happen to be in that setting, then probably the best service that you provide to your patients is to steer them down the pathway of a bone-anchored hearing aid. Difficult, difficult topic to discuss from a professional standpoint, but one of the 
very transparent areas that we should probably look at seriously. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time, Dr. Chu. Uh, this has been another podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion series. You can find more podcasts um, by searching ENT Expert Opinion uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, and you can always go to the website entexpertopinion.com. Thanks for joining us.